Hello and welcome to episode four of Comms Cross Continents. I'm Patrick Holbert, Head of Content at Simply Communicate. And I'm Aish Rajaveli, Content Executive at Simply. Aish, who are we sitting down with today? Today we're with Ray Walsh. He is an expert in localization with a book to prove it. He has run his own consultancy, raywalsh.net, for two decades now and focuses on relaying messages to different audiences and offices with nuance in mind. Oh, fantastic. Let's get straight into it. So, Ray, you are a comms and internal localization consultant. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and what that involves? Yeah, my, my background is in content. I'm a writer, first and foremost. And uh, as since I started out in content, um, I'm American, but when I moved to Europe about 15 years ago, we started to have to work with translations more. And I eventually I ended up writing a book about localization and internal communications. Uh, and, and people interpret that title to think of me as the translations guy. Uh, and that, and that, and that's an important part. Um, translations, you know, content in our mother tongue is extremely important. We just respond to it on a gut level, much more instinctively, much quicker. About five years ago, I wanted to, address these issues that I was seeing in these uh, here in the regions, you know, where I'm based in the European regions, the headquarters are often in another country. And I often see in the conference rooms during a conference call, uh, you know, a real, you can just see it in their eyes. They're not, they're not getting, they're not, they're not understanding what's being talked about. And I, and I just saw gaps and disconnects between the regions and the, and the headquarters. So I wanted to research that. I wanted to research what we in internal comms could learn from the localization world. And um, I talked to 30 practitioners from various uh, various disciplines, uh, design, information architecture, and so on. And the result of this was a book called Localizing Employee Communications, which should be available in any, any place that you buy uh, buy books. Uh, but the goal of that was to, you know, to really advance our, 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 our profession. And so it, it, it starts by outlining uh, the challenge, you know, but in the last part of the book, I talk about real solutions that we can offer, you know, not, not, not fancy tools that we need to buy or implement, but just, just basic changes in mindset and some simple steps and process that we can do to really become more effective global communications organizations. I think if you're a, a large global organization, and even if you're doing business entirely in English, there are still strong differences among business units. So for example, you may be headquartered in the US where you're a big brand, uh, widely known, maybe you, your, your business model is mostly B2C, but in Europe, maybe your company is much smaller, uh, a smaller player, uh, less known, and maybe it's even a B2B uh, model that people are going to market with. So those are important differences, and that's going to be you know, an important difference in how they go to market, but it's also going to be an important difference in how, you know, how those people expect to be communicated with, what they need. Uh, so, so what I'm talking about with localization is, is, is to move away from the traditional model where we in headquarters are the newsroom. You know, we disseminate information and then it, it, it trickles down to the organization. I think when you're dealing with a, a global setting, you le that leads to inaccuracies in information. For example, you know, maybe that B2C headquarters is talking about a product that's not even available in other countries. Um, and I think the other side on the on the on the region side, I think it breeds a kind of passivity uh, on our side. You know, they're waiting for something perfect for their market to come from headquarters. And you know perfect is probably not likely to come. We need them to step up and adapt it and make it perfect for their market. 
And that's that's part of what I really liked about um, episode two of your uh, podcast with uh, Celine Schillinger, and I'd recommend that to anybody. She was talking about co-creation and the importance of, uh, you know, the, the cultural resonance of 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 of, of getting co-created, you know, um, co-created locally generated content. And I think for a lot of organizations that may be a transformation getting there, maybe it's aspirational, but I think down the road, uh, companies will see real benefits to more autonomy, more local autonomy, more trust, and more shared responsibility, shared ownership of the of the channels. Yeah, and you mentioned there, Ray, about localization and predominantly putting it into the English language. Um, <clears throat> even even within among English speakers, such as yourself, stateside, and us uh, in the UK, um, there are significant differences in how we approach and how language is used. Um, do you have any experience, um, your side, of, of being able to to tweak that, or or, or any examples for us where where you've kind of gone in and significantly, um, yeah, kind of changed the lingo, let's say. Yeah, it, I think that's a really interesting uh, difference. I mean, we reportedly, you know, we 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 speak the same language, but if you have measurement in your organization for channels, uh, in the organizations that I've where I've seen measurement, you see huge drop-offs outside of the headquarters, and that's even uh, especially true if if you know U.S. U.K. differences. Um, so if the headquarters is in the U.S. Uh, you'll see huge drop-offs in leadership, sometimes even greater drop-offs than, say, France or Italy. You know, logically, you would say, oh, language differences are going to be stronger in France and Italy, but you'll see even bigger drop-offs in the in the in the in the rest of the Anglosphere. So I don't think it's language so much. I think it's relevance. So even if it's translated, it still can feel like it's from somewhere far away. And and people, when they know it's from far away, they just kind of tune it out. They can, can easily ignore it. On the other hand, if it's from their manager or their team members, it seems, you know, they read it. If it's recommended, it seems more urgent, it's more authentic. So um, just in terms of straight content, or, you know, to, to answer your question, um, we have seen when you when you just translate the content, just the language difference alone, there's really, it can really lead to quite dramatic uh, upticks in the amount of, you know, consumption of that content. But I just think for us, you know, in the headquarters, I think it's important for us to to get out of broadcast mode and think of ourselves as more of a, a support role to really move the organization toward co-creation. And it's not easy. And sometimes for important campaigns, important content, sometimes translations is just the easiest option. But it, it's quite imperfect. Um, you know, I, I'm American and our tone is just very much happy, clappy, go team. And that just leaves a lot of cultures cold. So that that's, you know, and you translate that and you still have that happy, clappy, go team kind of tone. Uh, it, it can still be somewhat alien. So uh, I think what, what we're talking about is really, it, uh, when we're talking about co-creation in terms of how you execute it, they need adaptable assets. Uh, they need tools to be able to work with and use those assets. Uh, they need training to work with them. And down the road, they need more autonomy and support and, and trust. So in terms of, you know, like the entire process of uh, engaging these localizers and co-creators, how do you do that? Well, you know, I, I, I kind of see three types of communicators in our in our networks, in our formal or informal communication networks. So you might have some people in some of your larger markets that report directly to you or part of your team. 
Um, so they're fully engaged in the process. In other markets, um, you know, maybe major but not huge markets, uh, you know, Germany or China for a lot of companies might be a good example. You have somebody from marketing or somebody from HR and they help you out from time to time. Uh, but they don't have a direct line to you, and if they get busy, they, they they can easily drop off. And then maybe there's a third tier with like really small markets where the person who's supporting you is 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 maybe the admin to the chief executive in that market. Uh, those are general kind of tiers, and you can get surprises. Sometimes that admin is just you know really great with communications, maybe just finished with a degree and is really enthusiastic about it. And then on the other side, maybe in your bigger markets, you've got some dinosaur who just really doesn't want to go digital at all. So it really kind of runs the full gamut. So what I'm what I'm suggesting with you know is define your network. You know who are they, and engage with them and find out what their capabilities are. Uh, what is their level of commitment? You know are they are they formally part of the team or is it one of those dotted lines? Uh, what are their professional aspirations? Meaning, are you a, a headache to them or is there something they'd really like to get more involved with? So, and, and moving them toward co-creation, uh, individual individual by individual, may be something of a journey, uh, but to get them there, I think we can routinely get in the habit of providing them with key messages, uh, you know, per topic, let's say you're a consultancy and you, you know, you have key messages for the automotive industry, you have key messages for the healthcare industry and so on. And as those get updated, you know, make that easy for them to get. Now, there are tools for that, but maybe it's just a spreadsheet. But nevertheless, they need access to what are we saying this quarter to those industries, for example. Uh, so you, you need to provide key messages, some kind of mechanism to keep it up to date, even if it's just a spreadsheet. Uh, they need a content calendar. So, you know, it's it's not so great if you launch a campaign in May and it's just a few days away and, and and, and and then if had they known in advance, they could have actually developed their own kind of supplemental, uh, complementary content. But you know they need time. They need to have some idea of what's coming um, down the down the pike. Uh, they need adequate tools and training. Um, I think for some, you know, you'll see campaigns that are in very advanced tools like InDesign or something like that. And sometimes people in local offices they just don't have InDesign or they don't know how to use it, even if they did. Um, and 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 if the, and if they're going to be considered part of your network long term, they, I think it's good to give them some kind of path for development, professional development, to really show that you're invested in them and you really want to see them grow as a communicator. A big issue around this is reporting lines, because and this goes back to what I was just saying: is it a formal relationship or is it a dotted line? And that's going to take a lot of navigating and you know, you know personal negotiation. But um, I think it's important, regardless of the size of the market, regardless of their commitment to it. Uh, to communications, I mean, I think it's important to help them understand that they are the communicator in that market, that they have responsibility and ownership, and and we're there to support them. And was it these pain points that kind of prompted you to start your consultancy over 20 years ago, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I, I gravitated in the, let's say, in the last 10 years toward this sort of more global focus. I originally got hired as a um, you know, as a writer, and then the dot-com bubble burst, and I found myself as immediately as a, a freelancer. But had I, since I had just started in the corporate communications field, uh, it allowed me some time to, you know, learn about many industries. Um, and I found that whether they were in heavy industry or, you know, pure services, I found that clear expression, you know, humanly expressed content, it, it really matters. And I, and I haven't found the company yet that doesn't really respond to that. You know, I haven't found the company that says, no, no, we really 
we really want jargon. <laughs> it's we're really committed to it. Um, but it, it never, you know, in many organizations, as a function, I think the the mentality of internal communications. I think we're still highly centralized, and I think now more than ever, we we need to evolve. How do you start decentralizing this, Ray? Is it through um, a more multimedia approach? Is it through um, prioritizing social channels such as Yammer, Slack? I have to about it. In my view, it starts with the people. Uh, I, I don't think the, the the channels are amazing and uh, they can do all kinds of interesting things. But I think if we in our mind are still thinking like we're in the newsroom and we're broadcasting now and everybody needs to tune in, I think there's just a, a real inherent limit to that. On the other hand, if we just change our mentality, I think those channels become much more dynamic and much more diverse. Uh, I, you know, I think we're diversity is in a, a hot topic right now for a very important reason. But if our communications approach is traditional, I think it's I, I think we're, we're we're just not doing what we could. Is that culture change needs to come from the top? Does that need to be new new values a new mission or or is it just a com communicate from or, or more just openness from the C-suite? Yeah, I, uh, I, I think it's more the latter. And I and I think it's, you know. I think in a lot of markets, we're going to find people that have a, a limited commitment to internal comms. It's just something they do as a favor. They're willing to, but they're not really like fully on board. I think we need to bring them on board. And, and, and in a way, I think, you know, it's the same way that the same kind of selling you have to do to some executives about the value of internal communications. And I think we some in some cases, we're going to have to sell the local markets on what they get out of this. And then we have to you know show that we're committed to supporting them, uh, you know, as as fully and, and you know, over the long term. So I think it is a cultural shift. Uh, and I think we'll find, you know, like, you know, um, you know, there are a great deal of differences country to country. Um, I think it comes down to individuals, frankly, but I mean, I have seen in Europe, you know, there are some generalities, you know, in, in Scandinavia, they tend to be much more autonomous. They tend to just put out their own campaigns. Um, and they tend to be on message and good looking and well done, but they just don't ask for a lot of help from us. Uh, Southern Europe, because of language differences, they may just be fully used to translating or, or, or creating their own versions of things. Um, Eastern Central Europe tends to be younger, more entrepreneurial, more digitally savvy. But these are all generalities and every company is different and every individual is different. Um, but I think it's, you know, like like Celine in, in that episode two was talking about anti-harassment. She provided a very good example, anti-harassment training in in some markets. It 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 can come off as as if it if it's generated in the U.S., it's going to reflect U.S. cultural norms. So, and I think with some things like that, with campaigns like that, training like that, it can often be laughed at in some markets, frankly, and that's that's not what we want. Here in here where I live, I live in Prague and East Central Europe. Um, they see Me Too and gender inequality as just strictly American issues. We, you know, it's not not part of our culture. But then you talk to other people, mainly women in this market, and they'll tell you, you know, they have very serious issues with gender inequality. But if it's presented in an American way, it's just it's just so much easier to be dismissed. And if we get into a mode of co-creation for these things, I think we can address real local issues. So we have to show that our support gives them value and can help them with the the problems that they're having. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's great um, what you're doing there and and identifying these issues. Um, so you've you've touched upon it briefly. Um, are there huge differences in the way that comms is handled, um, kind of between the USA to Europe? Um, I guess what are the biggest things that you've learned about 
um, the comms in each each continent and how they differ? Sure. Uh, you know, so in recent years, a lot of corporate communicators have been talking about um, Aaron Meyer's book, uh, The Culture Map, which is which is really worth reading and, and exploring. Uh, they're so interesting, these myriad differences from country to country, and and I'm always discovering more of them. Um, and then they're and they're super interesting. But the reality is, is there's no one individual or no team at headquarters that can keep track of all of them. Uh, and that's why it's so important that we uh, empower co-creation um, so that they can really tailor that to to resonate. But to answer your question um, specifically, I think the practicalities can be really significant and not very well understood at headquarters. Um, so for example, I'm, I'm, I'm continually briefing headquarters people on the on Europe's works councils. Um, you know, so for any rollout of a, a digital transformation tool, for example, I, you know, let's say uh, I remember one company rolling out um, uh, Enterprise Social, Yammer, and uh, and they rolled it out, you know, the US first and then Asia and Europe, but Germany was a holdout because of its works councils. They hadn't gone through the works council approval and this took a year to get. So, you know, so a works council, I guess uh, I should, you know, just for, for some of our listeners, um, it's, it's often confused with a union and companies that are, you know, have a union averse strategy, just tune out the works councils immediately. They see it as some kind of adversary. It shouldn't be that way at all. A works council in, in Europe is, it can be, you know, by country, there's even a, a European union level, but it's, it's, it's a requirement. It's a legal requirement. You have to have a, a representative body made up of employees and if you're doing, if you're changing, I'm, this is a huge generalization what I'm about to make, but if you're changing anything of employee experience, um, you have to go through the works councils to just give them a, a heads up. Now, so this could be anything like a, a facility closing or a new opening, rolling out of Yammer, all kinds of things can be categorized as influence, you know, influencing employee experience. So, so at, back at headquarters, they're seeing this as like, oh, this is a headache. This is going to delay us, you know, um, you know. It, but it shouldn't be adversarial. The people on the works council very often are longtime veterans of the of the company. Um, you know, they really want the company to succeed. And I think it's better if we saw these works councils as influencers. These are, which is what they are, in fact. So this is a huge opportunity for us to, you know, to to really get our, um, our priorities across to them and really bring them in so that they can help evangelize it back in their their home countries. So that's that's one uh, big difference uh, that Americans need to, American, American headquarters need to understand that, it, you know, rolling out new digital tools or something is going to take them a lot longer in Europe, but that's all the more reason to give them more autonomy and, and, and give them longer timelines. Um, there are also the matter of, um, you know, legal matters, you know, sometimes, uh, employee comps has to be in local language for legal reasons, or maybe it's on a subject that has to be in local language. So very often these things are done by local HR, uh, without uh, the knowledge or the support of headquarters. And frankly, uh, I don't mean to be critical here, but when it's done by people who don't have communications training, the quality can suffer. Sometimes the messaging accuracy is, is way off. Uh, but I think it's important for us to recognize we, we, we're not to be policemen here. It, this is going to happen. So um, yeah, that is locally created comms. So we, we should be looking to set them up with tools and messaging and a, a reasonable system for co-creation that, that, that everyone can use. Yeah, that's really interesting, Ray. Um, if I look at le less critical comms, but um, kind of let's say the BAU stuff. Um, so you do now have some digital um, providers uh, and employee experience uh, providers. 
have um, have translation tools within within their app. Um, so, for instance, we spoke with Glencore, Glencore, the mining firm, uh, a few months ago, um, and they have a team, a, a truly global team. And then within that, they have um, local dialects as well, which can be translated to. Now, obviously, the, the problem where it's a HR or a particular piece of paper, you need that localization expertise. And then you have the problem that you've just mentioned here, that there's a lack of training. But as a general rule of thumb for like for, for less imperative comms, um, do you think that it's having that kind of tool where someone can just go in and translate from market to market, whatever it is, that that, that could be useful? Yes, and this is a rapidly changing uh, field. This machine translation, it's going to uh, it's going to change everything. We're going to see more and more tools with these capabilities. Uh, however, I would offer some caution here. Um, in from the in the the localization world, as far as I understand it, this is normally in a more marketing or customer support area. It, I think it evolved out of the more technical fields where they're you know they may be producing. Um, products for like 30 languages or something and as they do updates they need to provide you know language support so they've developed much more advanced tools and systems than we have over the years this localization industry um but um but what they what they caution is about uh, uh translation memory so um if you're if you're if it's a heavy manufacturing environment if it's anything having to do with safety you know you know you know you're, you're making tractors and and if you translate the name of that lever incorrectly you you know you end up might you may kill someone so you you know in some places it's really important to get those terms correct and managing the terminology is a real um challenge and and the tools are getting better and better for that but it's something you need to be careful of now if like in the example you provided, it's it's less critical. You know, it's something a little softer than that. It's just you know, would it be more engaging to have the machine translation? Uh, again, still I I'd still would caution for for human review um, because the the vocabulary of your organization can be quite unique. So you know, for example, there may be a product that's translated word for word into French, or maybe some years ago they opted to just keep the English title. And if you're using a machine, the machine's not going to know that. So they're, you know, and they're so they've translated the product name into French, when actually the company's, you know, refers to that product in 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 English. It's just a, you know, one example. Um, so you want to, as as advanced as these tools get, there's always going to be those inconsistencies, and we need the human to to check them before they go out, uh, so that you know it's accurate for the organization, that it's legal for the country where it's in. Uh, all those kinds of things, we, you know, we, we they're they're a huge time saver, uh, and I think they really help you reach smaller markets um, where you would have never dreamed of spending on translations like I don't know Hungarian or Danish or something. So it's a huge opportunity. But I still I don't think it's a matter of just switching on the translation and uh, problem solved. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, you know, as a consultant, what kind of help do you find? that organizations are looking for the most now. Um, we're kind of two years into the pandemic, hopefully coming towards the end of it. Um, so yeah, what do you what do you think that organizations are looking for help with the most? As topics, there's a lot of lot of content now talk now about empathy and inclusion and those are hugely important as we've all realized and it, you know we always knew that but it's it's good that it's gaining traction but i think it's important that we not just value diversity uh, it's 
it's important for us to enable diversity. And our, our, if we're a global organization, we've got that kind of diversity inherently. And the COVID, um, COVID during lockdowns was a really great example of this. You know, when, when it was really raging in Europe, country to country, you had different levels of severity, different levels of exposure, meaning like people uh, who work from home aren't as exposed as, as people who are working in a warehouse. You had different regulations about, you know, whether things are locked down and what was an essential job and what wasn't. So that was a, a, a clear example where all communications needed to be local. There, there was no way we could put out COVID-related communications that were relevant for all markets. And I think during those lockdowns, headquarters and countries learned that they're there absolutely have to be local capabilities in place to execute communications that are accurate and effective. And, you know, for some cultures, that's a huge step. Um, and I would say for many companies, it's a huge step because generally speaking, I wouldn't say business people are naturally good at communications. I mean, some people are just naturally good at it, but they're, they're very few. Some have some training in communications, but just generally speaking, business functions put out very bureaucratic, jargon-heavy, uh, sometimes insensitive or um, unempathetic content. And I think that you know, helping them put out content, um, giving them the tools, is is you know, giving them the insight is more where we, the professional communicators at headquarters, that's where we come in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, right, and let's go back 20 years. At Divine, you mentioned you worked on a newsletter that ended up getting an 80% open rate. How did you manage that? And fast forward 20 years, is it possible now? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, th th those were, you know, those were startup days and they didn't really have the tools that we have today. There were no apps and uh, um, there was there were no mobile devices. Uh, it was, you know, email based and internet based. And these were small companies at the time, and they just didn't have channels. So in that specific instance, the, you know, the company that I was with was acquired. The acquiring company didn't have any internal communication channels. So we just kept doing what we were doing and expanded the audience. And I think people were just hungry for information, and they just immediately, you know, what's this new thing? And they started, you know, opening it. Uh, so I think the the need was 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 more uh, more of a driver there than the actual content. But uh, it's also important for me. It was one of the most rewarding um, channels that I've ever worked on because in the early days it came directly from my email my email inbox. So I was getting all the feedback directly. And even though now we're you know well into the social media era, I, I have to say in a way I was never more connected with my audience than I was then. And I was also new to corporate communications, and I I wrote like a journalist. I wrote like a person, <laughs> and I think I've lost some of that. I think I've been sort of trained by corporate communications to you know to to, to use words like leverage. Um, but 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 when you write like a person, I think that the the I think people appreciate that. I think they, they like being spoken to like a person. It's much more efficient. It's much warmer. Uh, they don't have to reread it. Um, and I, I just think the the response was, um, uh, you know, I think at that time, because of the company culture, we were also trying to employ humor a bit. I mean, nothing really risque, but uh, but but just 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 that kind of humanizing, I think people really responded to. For a lot of those employees, from what they had told me, it was just they hadn't seen comms like that before. Nice. Um, yeah, uh, newsletters at my old company would have about, well, I don't know, I think it was about, only about me reading them. Um, but uh, yeah, it's great to hear that you managed to get such a, such, yeah, such an uh, engagement level in those days. Um, 
I just it, want to... it, mind you, it may not have been sustainable because the company didn't last much longer. <laughs> that was the dot-com bust, <laughs> and they did go out of business. So I don't know how long it could have been sustained at that. But the new thing definitely got some um, appeal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, hence why we're launching podcasts, eh, Aish? Um, so, Ray, I just wanted to quickly come back to when you mentioned that the pandemic, um, that you needed this, um, you know, that, that you needed local level people on the ground helping. Um, but how did, how would businesses adapting to this quickly? Were they using people in HR in the local markets? Were they using um, champions, let's say, comms champions? Because obviously, as we know, internal comms is always underfunded and, uh, and perhaps um, in some instances uh, not quite fully utilised as well as it uh, uh, can be. Uh, so how were how would messages generally be getting communicated um, in in local um, yeah in local markets over the past let's say the the year which was particularly um, yeah prevalent where there was you know differences around the world in sort of rules and regulations. Yeah, what the company I was working with at the time was uh, an industrial environment, and fortunately they had a very you know traditional um, working approach where things trickle down to the country and to the facility. And uh, and so they were used to taking content and, you know, perhaps translating it themselves, or uh, but but it, delivering it face-to-face -to, -face to people. So that was a good thing, that, that they were used to that. But I think uh, it was also a very, um, how should I say, uh, um, you know, just, 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 just the facts, straight business. This is what you need to know kind of culture. Uh, you know, very industrial, almost military in its discipline. And during COVID, I think, you know, it was, you know, we were also providing toolkits um, about why you need to communicate with more empathy and what people might be going through. And, you know, so it was a, it was a huge opportunity for this company to shift its culture, which it was already trying to do, in fact. But, you know, we in communications were able to provide advice and best practice and where you know um, um, examples of where to put in um, you know places to insert examples and specific local references so i think you know as, as, as dire as those times were i think we were able to advance some of the company's goals and move toward a more you know empathetic environment and i think we you know uh i, I think there's you know, frankly there's a long way to go in that organization as in many organizations but i, I think we took huge steps in, in helping some people see that uh you know that they are far more effective communicators than any article i could write on their internet yeah and um moving forward do you have any trends that you that you think will be um do you think that you're going to be more in um in demand in the years to come, Ray, that localization uh, is becoming more and more critical. Um, have you noticed this? So, so many companies are talking, uh, have been for uh, several years now, but the digital transformation initiatives are just, I think they're just going to keep coming. And, uh, I, you know, it's, it's, what's interesting is that, you know, we're, we're putting out, rolling out various cloud-based tools, and these tools often come with myriad language support, you know, 30, 50 languages more. Uh, so so the employee experience, when they use the tool, they can switch the language easily. But if we're rolling it out in English, um, you know, it, it just, it doesn't look so great. But even in these these change communications, these transformation communications, I, it, it may not be practical. It may not even be legal or desirable to translate everything. Uh, it may be impractical. But I think it's worth thinking about, um, persuasion versus informing. So if I know that I have a new, um, you know, expense reimbursement tool that I need to start using, and I'm already bought in, I, I can 
I can maybe I, in a lot of a lot of companies they can handle the instructions in English. You know, they can read English, they understand it. That's no problem. But persuading them to care, that's where getting into their mother tongue, really speaking to their heart is so important. So I, I think in, you know, digital transformation, getting buy-in is where that kind of language localization is important. And um, and then from there, I think we can, we can, um, we can work with English probably. Thank you very much, Ray.